check one, two, three yet. Hello and welcome to today's segment of Two Worlds, One Country, the show on WEHC and WISEY's FM, where we explore the underlying causes of the rural-urban divide and what we can do about it. Today's guest is me, your host, Anthony Flacavento. I'm going to be doing a solo show, which I've done a couple of times previously, But it's kind of a teaser for at least a couple of guests that I'm hoping to have on the program over the next few weeks. So you'll hear a little bit about their work today, and uh, then within a short period of time, hopefully you'll hear them in person, as it were, in our virtual world. So I am your host, Anthony Flacavento, and I want to start with a little bit of shameless self-promotion, the organization that I helped to co-found with several other marvelous people, the Rural Urban Bridge Initiative, or RUBY. We've been rocking and rolling lately, including the production of a couple of pretty important documents. Now, that's not the main thing RUBY does. On the spectrum of think tank and do tank, we're, we're much heavier on the do side, but we do our share of thinking and oftentimes in the form of analysis that leads to things that we publish. And last year, we published a report called Can Democrats Succeed in Rural America? And that made the rounds and I think is being utilized by some prospective and active candidates. And this year, we've had a couple of products. Most recently, just uh, earlier this week, in fact, we released a directory of rural organizations. It's a national directory with a little more than 120 organizations listed, all of which are involved in rural work. Some of them are very focused on electoral work, some of them on grassroots community organizing, some looking at policy, uh, some sharing resources, making grants or loans, and some who do a combination of all of the above. So that directory is available on the Ruby website, and it's making the rounds like our prior report. If you have some interest in learning more about the groups that are really some of the best, most innovative groups working in rural America on those, on those different things, the directory is a good place to start. We don't claim to have gotten all of them. But uh, we put together a lot of them from across the country, and it gives you a one-stop shop, uh, organized, I should say, according to the main focus of what the groups do. So you don't have to scroll through 122 or whatever it is, examples. You can go to the table of contents and see the category of groups you're most interested in. So check it out. Directory of Rural Organizations on the Ruby website, which is ruralurbanbridge.org. About a month prior to the directory, Ruby produced and began disseminating a new document called the Rural New Deal. The Rural New Deal. That is a collaboration, the product of a collaboration between those of us involved with Ruby and a group called Progressive Democrats of America. In spite of the fact that the Progressive Democrats of America are indeed a, a partisan organization, this is a nonpartisan document. This is essentially a platform for investment in, let's say, legislative 
and policy changes that would greatly propel and accelerate prosperity in rural America. It's the product of several months of research and work by PDA and Ruby. The drafts of the document were circulated with about two dozen people from across rural America, from indigenous communities in the Pacific Northwest to Appalachian practitioners in uh, our neck of the woods. And those folks all weighed in. And as a result, the document is stronger. And I should say, with what I'm most proud of, having been one of the people writing it, is that it's very, very much grounded in the real world. It is rooted in things people are doing now that are working, whether they're creating new economies after coal has left a region, or whether they're addressing rural health care or housing problems. The document, though it's big, though it is uh, semi-comprehensive and uh, kind of aspirational, it's, it's looking to make big changes. The Rural New Deal fundamentally is grounded in things that work. So check it out, also available on the Ruby website. And that is, again, ruralurbanbridge.org. Okay, enough with my shameless self-promotion. I want to talk about some of what's in the Rural New Deal because over the next couple, three weeks, we're going to be exploring it in a little more detail. And today I want to start with uh, kind of the inverse of what you think. I want to start essentially at the local level, which is to say start with examples of some of the kinds of businesses, social enterprises, organizations that are making a difference in rural, that are building prosperity, that are bringing more people into the process, that are helping people help themselves, and all that sort of thing. And we're going to look at it in four different elements. The Rural New Deal itself has 10 pillars, and each pillar then has somewhere around a half a dozen to eight specific recommendations as to how we can reach the goal of that pillar. So what you're going to get today is a little sampling of some of those groups and businesses that embody the kinds of recommendations that you'll find in the Rural New Deal. Let's start with rural health care. One of the 10 pillars of the Rural New Deal is that we need to make rural health care more available, more effective, and more affordable. Two examples of many, in every case here there are many great examples, but two I want to mention are the idea of mobile health clinics. Mobile health clinics that deliver primary care, essential testing, and sometimes medications to people in out-of-the-way places. In my neck of the woods, that's the hollers of places like Dickinson and Wise County and, and related areas. In other places, it may be simply small hamlets, unincorporated towns far away from any sort of hospital or regular clinic. And these mobile health care facilities One of the very early ones, I'm not going to say it was the first, but one of the very early ones, started right in Dickinson County, Virginia, 
by a Catholic nun, a remarkable woman and friend named Sister Bernie Kenny. And Sister Bernie started the health wagon, taking an old RV-type vehicle, retrofitting it to become a uh, clinic on wheels, and then finding support staff to help that, that is to say, medical staff to help make that happen. The health wagon was a brilliant idea when Bernie formed it maybe 30 years ago. It's been quite some time back. And that particular mobile health clinic has grown uh, in its coverage, in the number of people that are availing itself in the counties. But it's one of a number of these mobile health clinics around rural America and small town that deliver a tremendously needed service extremely efficiently and effectively to people who otherwise either can't get the service or have to travel great distances, which is sometimes nearly impossible. That's an example of a kind of innovation in rural health care delivery that the Rural New Deal recommends supporting. Here's another one. Direct primary care clinics. Again, in Southwest Virginia, my first knowledge of this was a, a local woman who'd gone off to school and to medical school, came back as a physician, and opened one of these direct primary care clinics in her home county of Wise County. Now, these direct primary care clinics are essentially membership clinics where individuals, most often of, of very modest or limited means, pay a small monthly membership to the clinic, and in exchange for that, they get cost-free primary medical care. The way it works is that rather than paying premiums into a private insurance company or even premiums to supplement Medicare, individuals pay this monthly fee, and I've seen different figures because there's over a 1,000 direct primary care clinics in the country right now, but I've seen figures of 25 and 50 and $70 a month. And then when they need primary care, that's where they go, and they get it without copayments or any hidden costs. There's no third parties involved, which anybody who follows healthcare knows that a tremendous proportion of our healthcare dollars goes to administration, bureaucracy, and the profits of the very profitable, very big insurance companies. None of that. You bypass it completely. And for the, from the standpoint of the healthcare providers, the physicians and the other staff, it's a far simpler arrangement where they're not thinking about whether or not this person's needs will fit within the codes of the insurance company or according to Medicare or anything else like that. They are simply providing the services as they believe they are needed and, and then able to build a much better kind of health-oriented relationship with their patients. Really interesting model. Again, these are two examples of the kind of innovative, low-cost and effective healthcare treatment that is merged. It has emerged in rural America. And while we're not saying these are examples of the solution to the whole problem, we do believe that these are the kinds of things that the right federal policy can support and enable and expand. In farming, Lots of stuff going on 
uh, in food and farming across our country for the last 25 or 30 years. I'm going to give you two examples. One is farmers markets. I was lucky to be one of the people who helped to start the farmers market in Abingdon almost oh, 28 or so years ago, 25 years ago maybe. And that market, which has grown into a tremendous uh, point of pride and a place of commerce for the town of Abingdon, is now one of nearly 9,000 farmers markets in the United States. Compare that to the mid-90s when there were only about 1,750. So we've seen a nearly five-fold increase in the number of farmers markets. And with them, that has come to mean that literally millions of Americans can now buy directly from their farmers, oftentimes healthier food that hasn't been stored or traveled for many miles. Um, they can have more of a direct relationship to understand the practices the farmers use so they can choose the ones they like. It's not only been good for consumers, it's been great for farmers because it's created, in many cases, significant market outlets for the products that they grow, that they make, uh, that they raise. On top of that, farmers markets have been uh, something of a small business incubator, a place where um, whether a farm-based or other business can try something out with little cost. They don't have to go ahead and rent a storefront. They can start making things or selling things and testing the market and building a customer base before they go out on their own. A great example of that from our own market is Wolf Farm Natural Elements, owned and operated by Steve and Becky Wolf, dear friends of ours, who've been at the farmer's market for oh, uh, more than a dozen years. And at some point, in addition to the produce and the other items they were raising for sale, they started taking orders from other producers who needed things they couldn't find locally. This was particularly true of the farmers using organic practices or rotational grazing or looking for organic feed for their chickens or their hogs. And Steve and Becky started taking bulk orders and started kind of building up a group of local farmers who, and supplying them with these things. But the arrangement was a bit cumbersome. You had to get all the orders in in advance, and then you had to coordinate the deliveries, et cetera, et cetera. Well, after testing that and developing that for a couple, three years, they opened their own standalone business called Wolf Farm Natural Elements. It's a few miles from the farmer's market, and it has become a tremendous success because now not only farmers but home gardeners and others can get a wide range of materials from from organic fertilizers and worm composts through to things that control disease and insect and pests, uh, as well as basic supplies like potatoes and sweet potato slips, all locally, uh, now at the convenience of local farmers. And it was incubated at the Abingdon Farmers Market. So again, many purposes that farmers markets serve that help small farmers, uh, other small entrepreneurs, and the community as a whole. Another example in farming uh, of the kind of thing that the Rural New Deal, if implemented, would support and, and expand is what's often referred to as management-intensive grazing or, more broadly, rotational grazing. Now, in our politics, you'll often hear a debate that kind of comes down to 
Uh, farming is bad. It's a huge part of our emissions, and particularly animal livestock farming is very destructive of the environment, bad for our health, and it's contributing to climate change. Well, there's truth to that if we're looking only at big industrial concentrated animal feeding operations, or CAFOs. And that is the main way that most meat is produced in our country, beef, pork, chicken, turkeys, the milk we get. But there is an alternative that isn't just a handful of farmers. It's probably on the order from what I've read of between 250 and 300,000 farmers now using these rotational management-intensive grazing practices. Now, that's worth the whole show, and I'm hoping that to have a guest who will go over it. But suffice to say that farmers using these practices, whether they're raising uh, cows for beef or for dairy, whether they're raising chickens and poultry, lamb, they use a system that kind of takes advantage of the natural cycles of both the animals and the pastures that they're on so that you get a symbiotic relationship. You, they, they help each other, the animals and the ground. And with rotational grazing, the benefits are extraordinary. You can rebuild depleted soils. In fact, in the process of rebuilding them through management-intensive grazing, you get deeper topsoil, more carbon in the soil, and you actually pull carbon from the atmosphere where we have too much and store it in the soil. The practices themselves lead to healthier milk, healthier meat, and for chickens, healthier eggs for consumers. They're simply higher in nutrients, lower in bad fats, higher in good fats, uh, because of the nature of their eating habits. So you have, you have tremendous environmental benefits, you have health benefits for people consuming, and in general, it's a more profitable way to go because the farmers dramatically reduce their input costs, not only feed, but things like veterinarian services go way down because the animals are outside, they're moving, they're healthy, their diet is healthy, they're not confined in uh, small places with thousands of other animals. So another great example, and the Rural New Deal, again, has specific recommendations that would support these kind of practices, that would support it with research, with financial incentives, and others. Another area that we address is around manufacturing and the whole idea of what we can do to bring manufacturing that's been offshore back home and or simply help to uh, restart traditional manufacturing or venture into new types of manufacturing. Two great examples there. In North Carolina, there's an entity called the Industrial Commons. The Industrial Commons. It's a little more than a decade old, and it grew out of a remarkable textiles, a textile-based uh, manufacturing cluster. It, it grew out of a remarkable business called Opportunity Threads, which was a worker-owned cooperative that started a little more than a decade ago was highly successful in doing basically custom uh, textile products, uh, employing their workers as also company owners, which is what a cooperative does, employing a goodly number of immigrants 
who had some of those skills. That initial venture of Opportunity Threads then was grown and magnified so that now you have a whole cluster that includes 25 small businesses in in millwork and textiles, 25 employing somewhere around 2,500 workers. And of those businesses, uh, about a half a dozen are worker-owned cooperatives uh, employing over 100 people. So a really remarkable example of essentially bringing back the textile industry, something that was huge in North Carolina, South Carolina, and parts of Southern Virginia, and then just like the furniture business, died a death with the onset of both um, uh, capitalization that, that favored huge plants and pushed people out of work and, of course, the offshoring to low-wage countries. They're bringing it back in North Carolina, and they're better jobs, better conditions, better pay, and in some cases the workers are now also owners. A very different example but a really exciting one comes from Radford, Virginia. This is in southwestern Virginia, a small town in the mountains, a company called Acme Panel. I've been talking about them for years, and my good friend Joe Fortier is the founder and the CEO of Acme Panel. They have some other businesses that do um, their various forms of kind of contract work and development. But Acme Panel itself produces something called structurally insulated panels, and so the building that you do with them uh, is called SIPS building, Structurally Insulated Panel Systems. To describe a fairly complex technology simply, you take two pieces of wood, something like plywood, and in between you put thick insulation, uh, a rigid thick insulation, and they together become these panels, usually about the size of a sheet of plywood, four feet by eight foot. Couldn't be four by 12, can be four by 16. Those panels not only are tremendous insulators, but they have an interlocking system so that the erection of the buildings, the construction, goes fairly quickly. And the nature of the system, the buildings are much, much stronger than traditional stick-built homes. So SIPS panels give several benefits. They reduce energy use dramatically. Compared to a stick-built house with the same thickness of walls, SIPS panels give you double the R value or the insulation value. That means you dramatically cut the need for heating and cooling. In fact, they found that SIPS panels allow people to downsize their HVAC systems by about a third. So you have less ongoing energy use, whether you're heating in the winter or cooling in the summer. You have, as a result of less energy use, dramatically lower bills for the homeowners or the build, the business uh, within those buildings. And you have much fewer, many fewer carbon emissions as a result of that. On top of it all, these Buildings constructed with SIPS panels have been found to be far more stormworthy. They are sometimes among the only buildings left standing after a major storm comes through an area. That's being manufactured right in Radford, Virginia. 
that kind of business that's using new understanding and new technologies to produce things that reduce our environmental footprint while creating good local jobs is, again, exactly the kind of business that the Rural New Deal recommends investing in instead of giving more money to gigantic uh, private equity firms uh, or large uh, manufactured home companies that are already too rich with cash. And lastly, I'll mention uh, one more business. We might have time for two, but one more business that sort of combines uh, farming with just support of small businesses. The Rural New Deal uh, addresses the need to simultaneously confront corporate takeover of so much of our economy to fight back with antitrust and at the same time support small to mid-size independent businesses. Well, one I want to highlight and again hope to have the proprietor on in the next few weeks is a local one called Goshen Farmstead. Now, this is a farm that uses those management-intensive grazing, those rotational grazing practices that I referred to earlier. They're in Russell County, Virginia, not far from where I am. And they use those practices to raise beef cattle, grass-finished beef, chickens for consumption, broilers, free-range eggs, and milk, tremendous milk that is uh, among the best I've ever had, and they use Jersey cows for it. The innovative thing that I want to mention about them is not just their farming, which is terrific, and the products that they've done, but is how they went about expanding their business, their, their multi-pronged business. They decided at one point that they, they wanted to produce low-pasteurized, low-temp pasteurized milk. They, they started off by producing just raw milk. Uh, which many of us still get from them. You can do that in Virginia through a, a system where you become a part owner in the herd share, and that's what many of us have done. But they had a larger demand for people who didn't want to do that, and they needed to build a small dairy that, where they could pasteurize the milk using the lowest temperature that is required to uh, sterilize the milk. Well, to do that, they had to raise some money, and they had a certain amount of savings of their own and capital within their family, but it wasn't nearly enough. So what they did was they turned to their customers, people like my wife Lori and I and quite a few others, and said, here's what we want to do. If you want to help us do this, we'd like you to become shareholders as investors. So they turned to the community and specifically customers of theirs at the farmer's market created a business model with shares which then a number of households purchased, creating capital for them to build this dairy. And it's been an enormous success. About four years in now, their volumes of not only milk, but what I would say is the best yogurt on the planet, have grown dramatically. And they're servicing far beyond the Abingdon Farmers Market to retail stores from the Roanoke Valley down into North Carolina and Tennessee, uh, food co-ops and others. So it's a tremendous success as a business. And those of us who were investors, we have been getting what amounts to about a 5% return on our investment from day one. We've been getting it up to this point in the form of milk or butter or other things that they produce. 
And the payback, when you do the math, comes to between 4 and 5%, which is a heck of a good return. At some point soon, it's likely that Goshen will be paying cash dividends as well, or at least offering them to the customer base. But I bring Goshen up because they're an example of a diversified land-based business that also includes a significant small manufacturing element. Their practices are extraordinarily good for the environment, friendly to the animals on their property, producing milk, yogurt, eggs, and meats of the highest quality and the tremendously healthy. And then on top of that, they're part of a recent movement to raise capital locally rather than depending on predatory lending or big banks or even other types of loans. They raise the capital from their community, from their customers. Another very interesting model that is included in the Rural New Deal. So I'm going to wrap up here with this and say again that my name is Anthony Flacavento. I'm the host of Two Worlds, One Country. And today's program, we've started to introduce you to some of the particulars in the Rural New Deal published by Ruby and Progressive Democrats of America in September. Over the next couple, three weeks, I hope to get into other elements of the Rural New Deal and have guests here uh, who exemplify what it supports. Thanks and see you next time.